Acts chapter 1. We're reading from verse 9. This is the Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples. Final words as he was leaving this world to return to heaven. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right, so we're identifying this portion, rightly so, as one of the great events, one of the great moments in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. And um, doctrinally speaking, this event has been identified as the ascension of Christ. And I had emphasized in our study last week where we look specifically at the details of these few verses in Acts 1 that out of all of the great events in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, you know, his birth, his, his baptism, his public ministry, both teaching and doing miracles, his transfiguration, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and ultimately his second coming. But between his resurrection and the second coming, the ascension, all of those great events, um, each one deserves its own special focus. And for most of those, the church has, I think, and I'm not talking about just this church, but the church has successfully focused sufficient attention on those great events uh, in 2,000 years of church history. If you were to ask me, is there any one of the great events that are the focal points of what we should understand most about the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus that has not gotten enough attention. It would be this one. It would be the ascension. I'm not saying the ascension's been completely ignored. It certainly hasn't. And those who have been most fruitful in their teaching ministry in church history have given this its proper attention. But maybe we haven't uh, focused on it enough. And so we did a whole study just on the details of verses uh, 9 through 11. But I had mentioned last time that I want to stop here. I want to camp here for a minute. And I want to, uh, actually more than a minute, I want to camp here for uh, this Sunday as well. And then what I have planned, hopefully, is two studies after this, um, each one taking a a different viewpoint of the ascension. So last uh, last Sunday, what we focused on was, as the passage here in Acts 1 describes, it's the event, the actual circumstance of the ascension through the disciples' eyes. That's how Luke writes it. He writes it as if, and Luke wasn't even saved at the moment that this was happening, He comes to know the Lord sometime later during the events of the book of Acts through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But 
in this moment, while Luke is not yet saved, later he has the opportunity to meet these men, interview them, speak to them, hear from their own lips the account of what they experienced that day. And then he writes this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God so that what we're reading here is their viewpoint, their experience of the ascension, how, how it happened through their eyes. And then I said that what I would like to do today is shift our focus because there are portions of Scripture that intentionally do that. And we're going to stay focused on the main point of Acts 1, 9 through 11, but we're going to go to some other portions of Scripture today. And we're going to try to look at the ascension again, but now through heaven's eyes, through the viewpoint of a heavenly perspective. And then uh, next week, Lord willing, and the week following, I'll do a two-part study on the significance of the ascension, what it means, what was accomplished when the Lord Jesus returned to heaven and what continues to be poured out upon us as ongoing blessing in a sense because he did ascend and all that took place immediately following his ascension that continues to affect and impact our lives today. Whether you're aware of it or not, whether you're thinking about it or not, whether you're praising the Lord for it or not and thanking him for it or not, uh, there is an ongoing blessing if you belong to him that you enjoy because he ascended and then all of those unfolding events took place immediately following. So um, what I'd like to do first is I would like to just, I just chose three, and in the two weeks ahead of us, in a sense, these three passages I'm gonna read are like a preview of where we're going for the next two weeks. I just wanna read these passages with a brief comment connected to each passage. And there are literally many more than three that I could have read, and we will be, Lord willing, reading in the next two weeks. There's lots of what I'm going to call hidden ascension passages in the New Testament, and a few in the Old Testament as well. What I mean by hidden passages is they're, they're obviously available, they're in plain sight. You can, uh, like we're going to do with these three, you can open your Bible and read them anytime you want. But they're hidden in the sense that there's no wording in the passage, no direct wording that says, okay, pay attention, this is now about the ascension. And the word ascension isn't even used in these passages that I'm going to read, but they are describing the ascension in terms of its great impact upon us. So I want to read these three passages first with brief comment. And then I want to spend the rest of our time this morning, as I mentioned last Sunday, just on two passages. One chosen from the Old Testament, from the prophet Daniel. One chosen from the New Testament, from the Apostle John. And those two passages, I think, even among the rest of the ascension passages, rise in importance because they're the, the longest and most detailed descriptions of what actually happened when Jesus ascended. So first, let's, let's read the three. Uh, the first one I've chosen is in the book of Ephesians. And we have taught through each one of these passages as a church before, but um, 
they're well worth revisiting in connection to our theme. Ephesians chapter 1. What we're reading here is a prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed, like David shared just a little portion of a, of a prayer of Charles Haddon Spurgeon this morning for our, for our prayer focus as a church. And there's some value in doing that, you know, just exposing yourself to the prayers of great Christian uh, men and women throughout church history that, that love the Lord and fruitfully serve the Lord. But I, I, I'm just going to say if I were to have to choose between a prayer of Spurgeon's and a prayer of Paul's, I'm going to go with Paul's because we know one thing about Paul's prayer that we can't say with certainty about Spurgeon's prayer, though I do love that same prayer uh, that you read this morning. What can we say with certainty about Paul's prayer that we're about to read? He prayed while, and I mean, right at the moment of his prayer, he prayed while under the powerful influences of the Holy Spirit in what we call inspiration, meaning it was so inspired, it was inscripturated, preserved for us in scripture so that we could read it and know he's praying the mind and heart of the Lord and not missing any single beat in that prayer. The prayer really starts, verses 15 and 16 of chapter one are kind of the intro to the prayer. But the prayer really starts in verse 17. I'm gonna read the whole prayer, but I want you to understand this is an ascension prayer. Paul is, as he's writing this, and as he is praying this, he is entirely focused on the ascension. But how greatly the ascension is meant to affect, influence, and impact our lives here and now. As we're living them as those who belong to him because of his saving work in our, in our lives. Verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. The main point of that portion of the prayer is just, Lord, the church needs to have its eyes open to see something that unless you do an additional work beyond their salvation experience, and that additional work is opening their eyes wider than they currently are. Unless you open their eyes wider to see what they're missing, they will miss this. And it's critically important that they don't miss this. And then he begins to talk about the ascension from that point or pray about the ascension. We have a saying, and I've mentioned this concept before. It's a Christian saying. It's a traditional Christian saying and it's a, a saying that has to do with a concern for people that are just too wrapped up in Christian stuff. I don't know if you've ever met someone that's just too wrapped up in Christian stuff. What I mean by that is they read their Bible too much. They spend too much time praying. They spend too much time worshiping. Is it possible to do that? Yes, it is. You can go overboard. Yes, you certainly can. If, okay, look, I'm a pastor and I'm a Bible teacher 
And I'm supposed to spend time in scripture. I'm supposed to read the Bible. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be sad if I never read the Bible? And I'm up here you know, trying to help you to understand it better, but I never actually read it myself. Wouldn't it be sad if I didn't spend hours actually digging into the text that I'm teaching to help you to understand it more fully as I've come to understand it? Wouldn't it be sad? But what if I only, from the moment I woke up until the moment I went to sleep, only ever read the Bible? My wife would probably have some valid reason for concern. And ultimately, you would too. You know, I never did anything other than read the Bible. That's what I mean by going overboard. And so we have a saying, a traditional saying that goes along the lines that he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. And there is some validity to that if someone is so overboard where they just, they have no sense of spiritual balance in their life. But... I would say while earlier generations of Christianity and an occasional exception can still happen today may have had problems with that developing, our generation tends to have the opposite problem, yes, which is there are people who are so earthly-minded who know the Lord, love the Lord, church members, following the Lord, they're disciples of the Lord, but they're so earthly-minded that they're very little, at least, heavenly good. And so this prayer that Paul is praying is all about that concern. Having, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. Here's the measurement of that great power. It's the same extent of power that God used when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Well, between raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand, what happened? Christ ascended. This is an ascension prayer. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things. He, God the Father, put all things. That's a broad category when you're describing things all things he God the father put all things under his the son's feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church what that means is he's not just head over all things disconnected and isolated from you and your life he's head over all things for your sake. Him being head over all things has some critically important connection to the life that you're living in this present world. And the 
problem is your eyes aren't open wide enough to fully comprehend that. And so Paul prays, like he did for the Ephesians, as we should for ourselves, that, Lord, open our eyes to see the fullness, the greatness of what you have done when you seated your son at your right hand as he ascended and returned to you in heaven. He gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And believe me, right at this moment, I'm tempted to just stop there and talk about all of what that means. But let's move on and read another passage. This one in the book of Hebrews, chapter one. Hebrews. Again, an ascension passage that doesn't use the word ascension, but it is talking about that. Hebrews 1, verse 3. He, and this, the, focal, the focus here, the spotlight here is on Christ. He is the radiance, literally the outshining of the glory of God. All the glory that's resident within God the Father is seen and only can be seen in the person of his Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, the exact imprint of the nature of God the Father. And he, the Son, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, when was that and and what did he do to accomplish that? He died on the cross. So after his death on the cross, and in doing so, making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high And of course, the resurrection had to happen after the cross and then the ascension had to happen after the resurrection. Those two words aren't mentioned here, but they're clearly indicated and implied. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Just for the sake of time, let's skip down to verse 8. This is now, the Son is back in heaven. He's ascended. He's in the immediate and direct presence of God the Father. And now, Paul, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, allows us to listen in on a private conversation, but for public consumption. A private conversation that takes place between the Father and the Son. And the Father here is speaking to the Son. And he's speaking about the Son. And he says in verse eight, but of the son, he says, God the father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Skipping down a little further. Verse 13. And to which of the angels has he, God the Father, ever said, 
sit at my right hand, and here a psalm is being quoted, Psalm 110, one of the most important of the Messianic Psalms, and it's applied to Christ, and it's applied to the circumstance of his ascension. To which of the angels has God the Father ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? One last passage in our preview. 1 Peter 3. Why do movies do previews, by the way? Yeah, so I, I really do hope you'll come back next week and be here for the main event. First Peter 3. We're going to read from verse 20 through 22. And it's speaking about a very important time in history, one of the most important times in history, It's the events during the generation of Noah from the Old Testament. And we all know what great event took place in his lifespan, and that is the flood, God's great judgment that inundated the earth. Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. And then this last phrase, just a brief description of one of the great things that followed his ascension. With angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Next week I'd like to, or, or possibly the, the week after that, I'd like to talk a little bit more about what that means that angels, authorities, and powers, and why those three categories were subjected to him. Meaning he is now, from that moment of his ascension forward, he is now fully in charge of all of that and what it describes. All right. So with that under our belts, let's spend the rest of our time just on these two key passages. The first one back in the Old Testament, the prophecy of Daniel. Uh, For those who, I was looking back in my outlines when I taught through the book of Daniel, and you know the saying, um, how time flies when you're having fun. Um, It really, it, it literally shocked me when I looked at the date for this teaching and it was 10 years ago it was like man how did I lose 10 years of my life so quickly I mean it's not that I've wasted those 10 years but it's just it doesn't seem like for me I remember teaching this like it was last month I don't I don't understand how it could be 10 years ago but maybe for you it feels like 20 years I don't know Daniel chapter 7 We camped here. We spent time here. I don't expect you to remember it. It was 10 years ago. But uh, this is what I described then as I was teaching through Daniel is is this is the hub of the prophecy of Daniel. Everything before this leads to this 
moment and everything flowing from there from here through the rest of the book of Daniel is is really pointing back to this and in relationship to this it's a vision Daniel is receiving information as if he was there to witness it but the events that he's witnessing haven't happened yet this is one of the amazing things that only God himself can do which is he shows Daniel events as if they were happening in that present moment of Daniel's life but Daniel lived 600 years before the fulfillment of these actual events but what does that tell you it tells you that God planned these events and that God sovereignly worked all of the flow of history to bring these events to a fulfillment exactly as he had described they would happen and showed Daniel that they would happen 600 years before they actually happened. That's how much God is actually in charge of the events of history. And we are meant to take encouragement from that because for us living in the midst of history at times, doesn't it seem that events are somewhat spinning out of control but they aren't they never have they never will they can't possibly because god is in charge of history so anyway this is a an ascension passage and again the key word ascension is never used here but trust me on this and i'll i'll try to make it clear as we go through it this is an ascension passage and it's a relatively short one it's only two verses daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 let me just read both verses together and then i want to go through and kind of break them down a bit i saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away all right so when we were here in studying through Daniel, this was on a Thursday night, um, we spent some time here. It was more than a single teaching here. So obviously I'm shortening and I'm kind of compacting all that I had previously taught. But the first detail that we're meant to notice, as Daniel is watching the ascension of Christ as if he's there but he's watching it 600 years before it actually happens but then when the time comes it happens exactly this way and the first thing that he saw the first thing that he noticed therefore through his eyes we're meant to notice this first he doesn't see the one who ascends first what does he see first clouds of heaven 
And then immediately following the clouds, he sees one like a son of man who is clearly in connection to, in relationship to this cloud or these clouds, plural. Now, I focused attention on this last week. We'll talk about it again next week. What clouds are we talking about here? Is this just a random meteorological phenomenon? No, this is a biblical cloud. This is a spiritual cloud. This is a special cloud. It was a cloud described in Hebrew as the Shekinah. And it literally meant the cloud of glory. It was the same cloud, as I mentioned last week, the same cloud that led the children of Israel out of Egypt across the Red Sea through the wilderness and eventually into the promised land, the pillar of fire and cloud that led them through the wilderness. It's the same cloud that settled directly on top of Mount Sinai that Moses entered into and spent 40 days and 40 nights in receiving from the Lord who was inside the cloud, receiving the blueprint for the construction of the tabernacle and the Ten Commandments. The same cloud that later when Moses completed the tabernacle, the same cloud that settled directly on top of the tabernacle and then seeped into the tabernacle itself and filled the sanctuary the tabernacle interior. The same cloud that later, when Solomon constructed a stone temple to replace the movable tent structure of the Lord's house, signifying that the Lord was settling in Jerusalem as his capital city for his kingdom on earth as represented through Israel, that same cloud settled into the stone temple and filled that sanctuary during the inauguration of the temple then. It's the cloud that the Lord used, as is described in the book of Psalms, as a covering for his glory, because if there was no covering for his glory, what would happen if the Lord appeared to his people in the way that he was appearing to them? It would literally obliterate them. Because he's so glorious and so powerful in the expression of his glory, and his people are so affected by the corruption of sin that they could not look directly at his glory without being killed. And so the Lord graciously, mercifully accommodates the weakness of his people and puts on clothing. And the clothing he put on was a cloud. So this is all about that. I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man. Now, I've talked about this coming and mentioned before we studied it, not not this passage, not that long ago, not just in the Daniel teaching, but when we went through Matthew chapter 24 and the prophecy that the Lord Jesus gave then and connected those two prophecies. Um, This is commonly taken by many good-hearted and well-intentioned Bible teachers, but I'll just say, good-hearted, well-intentioned, but wrong. Many who view this event as though it were describing the second coming of Christ. There are many wonderful passages that describe the second coming of Christ. Second coming of Christ, this is not one of them. 
This is describing the ascension. And the certainty of our interpretation is based upon the next phrase. There came one like a son of man. The son of man we know is Christ, Jesus. But where did he come from and where did he come to? Anytime there is a coming in scripture, it's clearly indicating traveling from one location to another location. And it's important to pay attention to the detail of where did the journey start and where did the journey end. Here, all that's mentioned is the end of the journey. But because we know the end, we can extrapolate backwards along the traveling path and rightly conclude where the journey must have started. So where did the journey end? There came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days. That's the destination. That's the conclusion of the journey. So Christ Jesus came to the Ancient of Days and in a spiritually spatial sense, where is the Ancient of Days located? In the the broader theological sense, of course, God is, he's these three special words that we choose to describe the uniqueness of his nature that distinguishes him from all human beings and all angelic beings as well. We refer to God as omnipotent that means all powerful we describe god as omniscient which means all knowing and we describe god as omnipresent which means everywhere present you cannot travel to any location anywhere in god's creation even if theoretically you had a spaceship that could travel to the farthest reaches of the universe, even if you were to do so, God would already be there waiting for your arrival. And he'd also be every point along your journey as you're traveling. So in that sense, God is everywhere present, but in the sense of the revelation of the Ancient of Days in Scripture, and there's only a few key places where the Ancient of Days is described, and this is here clearly a reference to God the Father. In that sense, there's a a single place where he is most fully revealed at that moment in history, and that singular singular place is not here on earth. The, The Ancient of Days, whenever he's pictured in Scripture, is always found in heaven. And so if the Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days, he came to heaven, he traveled to heaven, which implies and indicates tracking backwards from a starting point, where did his journey start? Where did the Son of Man's journey start? It started on earth. Now we're not talking about his whole life's journey, because if we're talking about his whole life's journey, his journey started where? In heaven, his journey took him to earth, and now his journey is returning him to heaven. This is just a snapshot of the moment of his return to heaven, but clearly he came from earth, traveled to heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days. It's an ascension vision, not a second coming vision. And when he came to the Ancient of Days, the next focal point of Daniel's vision is simply this. What happened next? See, the Acts passage described that we've read several times. In fact, keep your place in Daniel. Let me just reread this. 
phrasing, because it's key phrasing, and it's all about why I'm doing this particular teaching. The Acts passage in verse 9 says this, 1-9 of Acts. And when, he, when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him where? Out of their sight. So that passage is all about the ascension from their viewpoint. He entered the Shekinah glory cloud, which was in the atmosphere, in the sky, the observable sky. He entered that cloud, and as soon as he entered the cloud, he disappeared from their view. Now, the angels, the two of them, later described to them where he went next because they can't see where he went next. And they describe he was taken into heaven. But what we're focused on now is what happens next. What actually, why did he ascend and why he ascended is answered by the details that the Lord gives us through heaven's viewpoint of the ascension event. He came to the Ancient of Days and he was presented before him. So we have a he and a him. I, I keep saying this just so that we can keep straight who is in view in each detail of the phrasing. He... Christ Jesus, the, the, the crucified, now resurrected, and now ascended Christ Jesus was presented before him, the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father. Now, what does that mean? He was presented to him. How many of you have seen some old movie of like King Arthur Days? when there were kings who ruled over their realm and they had a royal palace and a royal court within the confines of their palace. And someone, some visiting dignitary comes to visit the king who lives in his palace and is sitting on his throne in his royal court and the dignitary is brought into the room and he doesn't just saunter in and say, hey, what's up, king? What happens as the dignitary enters the room? He's presented. Some royal functionary standing at the doorway says out loud for everyone in the court to hear, but specifically for the king's benefit, I now present to you, whoever, you know, Sir Galahad, or whatever, whoever the dignitary actually is. And even if he's not a visiting dignitary, even if he was just one of, for instance, the knights of the realm, when it's his turn to walk into the king's presence and walk into the king's court, when the king's not just walking around or, or, or riding around in his kingdom. He's in the court. He's seated on the throne in his official and royal function as king. That Galahad would be presented before him each time he comes into the king's presence. So it's not like God the Father has no clue who's coming in to his court in this key moment of the life of the Lord Jesus 
This is his first time back in heaven in over 30 years. He's been on earth the entire time. And by, in spirit, God the Father's been with him every step of the way, every moment of his life on earth. But now the son is returning. And he's returning triumphant. He has finished the work that his father, the Ancient of Days, sent him to this planet to accomplish. He finished a work that no one else could possibly have finished. And he's returned, and he is now presented. It's a formal honoring of who he is that he has presented. It's not that God is trying to figure out who's coming through the door. One of you angels, could you fill me in real quick so that I don't call him by the wrong name? He's presented before him. And following the presentation, something additional happens, and it's super important. Verse 14. To him, that's to the Son, the returning triumphant Son of God, to him was given, and, the, and it's implied, it's not identified here, it's implied, and it's a clear implication, I don't think anyone here will argue, who gave what's about to be described to him. To him was given, God the Father at this moment, following the formal presentation, the Father has a gift for his Son. And the gift is in a sense of reward for mission accomplished. And it's not a temporary gift. It's a permanent gift. To him was given dominion. Now that's a special Bible word. Starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. It was spoken to Adam and to Eve as their primary responsibility in their lives. And they blew it big time. Primarily Adam's fault, though. And now, the one who is later in Scripture described as the second Adam, and also described as the final or the last Adam, receives from the Father a similar charge that was originally given to Adam on earth. To him was given dominion. And what was Adam given dominion over, by the way? I wish, if we had time, we'd go back to Genesis 1 and reread it. What was, you know though, what was Adam given dominion over? Everything on earth. Limited only to the earth. But still, you've, you're standing right now. I've just created you. I've just made you. I've just fashioned you like a potter fashions clay. And then I breathed into your nostrils the breath of life. And here you are standing on, on the surface of an entire planet and I'm giving you dominion over the entire thing. Don't mess it up. And then he proceeds to mess it up. Now to Christ is given that dominion. And on top of dominion, he's given glory. We'll talk more about that next week. He's given a kingdom. We'll talk more about that next week. That all for this purpose, he's given these three things for this purpose, dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Are they not nearly like they should? 
But nevertheless, the gift was given with that intention for that purpose. And ultimately, that purpose will not be frustrated. God is at work. He will make this happen in its fullness. Eventually. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now, what, was it, what exactly is the nature of his dominion? What's the extent of his dominion? How big is it really? How long will it last? His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And this is described in contrast to every other kingdom of man that has ever been established in all of human history. They rise. Some of them rise greatly to to significant um, prominence among all the other nations. And they all, every single one of them, not a single exception, they've all fallen. And they continue to fall. This isn't the point of the passage. Right now, if you were to say, well, what's the dominant nation on the face of the earth today? Some might argue, United States of America, others might argue, China. It doesn't matter. They'll both fall. Before you could have made a case to USSR, what happened to the USSR? Fell. What happened to the British Empire that so great, so expansive that the sun never set on it? What happened to the British Empire? I mean, Britain's still around, and they still like to refer to themselves as the British Empire, you know, in their private conversations. But it's no empire anymore, and the sun is setting on it all the time. And every other great kingdom of man has fallen and has passed away and has been destroyed. This one, his kingdom, is one that shall not be destroyed. All right, so I had planned, of course, uh, to cover Revelation chapter 5 as well. I never got there. I still have 10 minutes, but I've got more than 10 minutes to say. So I don't want to give it um, the wrong kind of attention. Tim, if you could come on forward and get ready for our final song. And, And we'll have time if you want totally your call uh, to pick another one from the list we could do two okay great I'm a big fan of medleys Um, what we'll do is I had said we're going to camp here and do like a a four part mini series it's just morphed into a five part mini series (laughs) so we'll save that for next week if you want to read ahead though we'll be camping in Revelation chapter 5 next Sunday Lord willing God bless you